0: Welcome to 600 Pixels, a podcast that goes below the fold of the World Wide Web to see how we can design and build better digital experiences for everyone. My name is Travis Self.
1: And I'm Caitlin Potter. This week on the podcast, we are chatting with Will Pry. He is our Director of Marketing here at LifeBlue and also a, uh, a very funny guy and a veteran of the newspaper industry. Um, so Will has worked at... Uh, the Denton Record Chronicle, um, the Dallas Morning News for any of you local Dallas sites who are listening. He's got some really great experience and we decided to pick his brain on what it's like to work for a newspaper um, as it's transitioning into the digital age. So sit down and have a listen. We think you're really going to like this one. all right this week we're sitting down with will pry the myth the man the legend and many other things that we're not allowed to say on air <laughs> will pry he's the director of marketing at life blue so we get the joy of working with him every day uh Unfortunately, not in the office right now, because as we are currently recording, we are all under uh, quarantine, lockdown, working remotely. Uh, so we're on a Zoom call instead, so we can see each other's lovely faces. So welcome to the podcast, Will.
2: It is great to virtually be here. Thank you. I noticed you introduced me as a myth first and not uh, a man, which is probably accurate. Sometimes so, so. the order.
0: Yeah, sometimes the order that you yeah. say it
2: in is very important, it,
0: depending it shows on you're well, priority
1: yeah. here. Yeah. Definitely yeah, definitely a myth first I would say so <laughs> Well, we're hoping to uh, Glean uh, a few details From your mythical background Today, so maybe you can Start us off and tell us a little bit about uh, Your origin Tell us your origin story, I guess well, Tell us all about your background And maybe how you ended up Where you are today you Working Can life play with us.
2: You know, it's the uh it's a it's a tale as old as America itself. I uh <laughs> I, I grew up and uh was mesmerized by uh of all things advertising and thought I wanted to be a copywriter. Uh started taking some classes in college and found out that no, actually I'm a journalist. Uh and I'm a journalist because I think the long hours and the and the low pay were so appealing that I had to follow that um <laughs> passion. Um And uh, I spent, you know, three years at the newspaper where I was in college, and then I spent another 21 professionally at the Dallas Morning News, although it only felt like 30. And uh, since then, I've been at Life Blue, and the way I, it was a really roundabout way of working my way to Life Blue. um, uh, We started uh, noticing that this internet was changing our industry so much, and we didn't have the... Sort of vision the parts and pieces within our organization at the time to to make some of the changes we needed to make. We kind of needed the outside world, so we started working with folks from Life Blue, and and um, the marriage there of kind of strategy and our work was was uh, pretty amazing, and some of the most rewarding years of my career from 2015 to 2018, which then led to me uh, reexploring and reimagining, and here I am now.
1: Talk to us. Talk to us a little bit about when. In your time working at the newspaper, when did the actual shift in the industry happen where it really became prevalent that newspapers had that realization of, even if it was the inkling of like, oh, man, we really need to start having an online presence? Like, when did that monumental kind of shift start to happen? I mean, it's still a lot of people could probably argue today that that's still happening there's still a lot of smaller papers that are trying to bring their businesses online and figure out what their digital strategy looks like but when do you think that that kind of really started to first surface in the industry
2: it's so funny you know um newspapers were had it so good for so long that i think there was real resistance at the start of this move toward um internet publishing that just because the resistance was, no, I I don't want to do anything that's going to upset my, my beautiful business where we literally just print money and light our cigars with hundreds and light those hundreds with hundreds. I mean, it was the easiest money you could have ever made. If you need something, you have to go to the classifieds to get it. And every day you're publishing a yellow pages and throwing it in people's yards Uh, under the assumption, by the way, that everybody reads every word of every page that's ever published. And uh, I think we all know now, that's just not how that works, right? So I call it late 90s. When I started at the morning news in the mid 90s, and I think we had like two terminals in the entire third floor newsroom that had even access to the internet. If you think about that, like we were publishing the day's news, and no one was going to go sit at the one or two computers to even look up, like what's the latest on this? We just know because our reporters know because they're the source of truth. And the idea of democratizing that was really, really scary, both to um, to the business interests, but also just to the intellectual interests that we thought we we owned back then.
1: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, what what was the first step? How do you, as a newspaper, even Get your feet wet with that. I mean, it just seems like such a huge shift. Like, where do you even start?
2: Yeah, so you go back in the wayback machine. You can see some of the first websites the newspapers are putting out there, and I mean, there's a running joke, right, that they don't look that much different. It's just they're a little bit cleaner and they have nicer uh, white space between the uh, the fonts. Um, but I would say that at first, it was a notion of wait until we've published it, the printed paper and then make everything available at say 6am because we don't want to scoop ourselves. And I can remember having a managing editor, uh, in the late nineties who was a little bit more, uh, thinking ahead and and just finally one day said, folks, how the, how the hell are we going to scoop ourselves? Like, how do you do that? Like either we own this story or we don't. Right. But the notion, like, In those days, there was such a difference in how print media saw itself versus how TV media saw itself versus radio. And we didn't want to cross those streams because we thought, you know, a thing is a thing is a thing. And there's these oceans between us. And, uh, it's funny to look back on it now. So archaic in our thinking, but the original thing was, it was like a bulletin board. Basically everything that was in print, you can see for free online. And people were like, Oh, well, I hope the newspaper industry will be okay. As a result of this change. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. No, I can't see why possibly that would be a problem. Uh, but, (laughs) uh, over time, you know, um, here's a, here's a funny piece of this that maybe you've heard of. Our company was a big investor in something called the QCAT, which was an idea that was ahead of its time. And yet also so far behind its time that it, it, it hurts to think about. It was, um, it was a device you had to plug into your computer and read a barcode. So it was basically like a QR reader, except that iPhones were still 10 years away from existing. Right? So, um, the idea was, Oh, you can swipe any barcode and it'll take you anywhere on the internet. And there wasn't, as one reviewer said, it failed to solve a problem that didn't exist. Um, but one of the things that they wanted to use it for was every article by X reporter has a barcode and you, And you swipe it, and you can read that reporter's notes that didn't get into the story. And we're like, who the hell leaves stuff out of their story and leaves it in their notebooks? Well, hello, have you heard of any podcast or blog today? Like, that's all that stuff is. It's the contextual stuff. So we just couldn't see the forest for the trees that we were chopping down to print these papers on for the longest time.
0: So -hmm. I think I actually had a cute cat. Wasn't it like it looked like a little pointer thing it, did you ship them out for free did, did i get it for free i think i remember
2: yeah it was actually shaped like a cat um yeah and, that's right and, and, because
0: <laughs> i'm guessing it was like oh the mouse the keyboard mouse let's make a cat was that the idea people
2: made oh, people made that oh, joke yeah. about it yeah the cat and the mouse and, um, yeah so yeah. if you were a subscriber to the morning news you got one literally in a bag i think with your paper one day yeah and, you know, i know
0: i explicitly remember that how how, how many that's years really ago funny. was that
2: I want to say, uh, and someone is. If someone hears this, you can call me out and tell me I'm wrong. But I want to say it was late '90s. I want to call it '98, '99. I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, I seem so, to remember. Yeah,
0: glad, so.
2: We were. I was on the uh, news desk at the morning news at that time, and we were producing pages every single day, and um, the just the gymnastics of making sure the barcode. Was in, was the right size to be read by the reader? If it reproduced the right way in print, and then also where to drop it in the story, and also what the language, the promo language to go with the barcode to explain why there's a barcode in the middle of your story. Um, it was yeah, a, it just was you know
0: we of, never we never used it so no
2: no I, we can laugh about it now no, uh, I mean, as opposed yeah. to the investment at the time. But there was a, I remember once sitting in the newsroom. And we were about to launch this. And there's as you imagine, some cynics in a 600-person newsroom at the time. And I remember this this one older uh, state editor we had uh, took a proof. And we had a proof of a page. And we had dropped the barcode in. It was in some story from Austin. And he swiped the thing to see. And it took him to the Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory or Chocolate Company, whatever, <laughs> uh, website. And I just remember hearing from his corner of the room, Oh, well, we're going to have problems with this. And it was just, <laughs> it, yeah. was that, it was that moment where we thought, I hope he just doesn't know what he's doing over there. I hope he's swiped wrong. Yeah.
0: Man, that's weird. So, uh, changing topics a little bit. Um, so this podcast is called 600 pixels. If you don't know, um, and the idea being like, that's the, <laughs> hold on. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Do you know Wait. what show
1: you're on right now?
0: <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. Uh, that's a podcast. Uh, no. Where am I? Where am I? No, the (laughs) idea being like 600 pixels is the agreed upon back in the day amount of pixels that were visible on a screen. So that was considered the fold, right? And obviously that term comes from newspapers, the fold, right? Above the fold. Did you guys have that? um, Did you think about that when you first went digital? Since you you guys were the paper, are the paper industry. Were so like when you made that transition, were you having those? <laughs>
2: were you having those conversations? We had no idea what the pixel count uh, that b- above the fold was. But in the early days of um, having the homepage up, and even I'll say early hell, the first fifteen years of it, um, the notion was: well, if I want to be on the front page, if that's the ideal place in print for a reporter's story to be, then I really want to be on the homepage because the assumption was. Um, if someone's coming to xnewspaper.com to read stories, you want to be right there at the top above the fold. So we did talk about it in the, in those terms. And I think that's actually been one of the more recent waves of discovery for journalists as they learn how to adapt to this, uh, print journalists, as they learn how to adapt to this piece is who comes to a homepage anymore. Everybody gets everything through a feed, whether it's Reddit, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Insta or Facebook. It actually doesn't matter. So the fold has less, um, less importance for a homepage to some extent. Now, if you're living in the reality we're in right now, your newspaper website ought to have a um, takeover uh, design in effect so that the entire top half of your homepage is the most pertinent coronavirus news, which I think most responsible news orgs are doing. I mean, and that, in that way, even for these fleeting moments, these newspaper websites still can reflect the historic nature of the news we're living through. Um, you know, people. I remember uh, people lined up around the Dallas Morning News office to buy the front page when Barack Obama was elected. I mean, there was a line out the door and we hadn't seen that before. I did that. There you go. Uh, were you old enough to buy a paper back then?
1: <laughs> hey. Hey, okay. I wasn't living in Dallas. I was living in Rhode Island at the time. But you,
0: did you vote did you, for him? Did you?
1: You, you bet your sweet bippy! I got a copy of the paper. But
0: were you able to? Serious question. Were you old enough to vote for him in two thousand eight?
1: Yep, I was. Yeah, okay. I graduated high school that year. My math is if way all up. of our listeners want to do the math and figure out how old I am. I just turned thirty. So yes, I okay, was. Okay. That was my first uh, first general election I ever voted in. I I voted for Barack Obama. And then I got a copy of the paper. the papes.
0: The old papes, yeah.
2: That's one of those things that the old newspaper guys used to kind of crow about was, oh, the internet will never replace us because we're going to do frame a homepage and put it up on your wall. I mean, but if you consider the amount of history they cover and the number of editions they published, how many editions do you see on people's walls anymore, right? The other argument was, right. oh, no one's going to take a whole computer to the bathroom to read the sports page with them. And then the iPhone came along and like, does anybody ever come out of the bathroom? A iPad. Anymore, right. I mean, that's right.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Quality time Gross. in the bathroom. Yeah.
2: Gross. Hey, this is this episode is brought to you by Phone Soap. Phone Soap, clean your For,
0: phone. Brought to you by Charmin. Yeah. Everybody sponsored by toilet paper. And, yeah. You want
1: it? You need it, but you can't get it.
0: <laughs> yeah. The only the only paper that matters anymore. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's a crossover there where well, you can have a toilet newspaper, yep. but I don't know how to get there just right
1: now. So yeah, I was gonna say, I'm like we're we're almost we're charting there. I could see I could see the intersection we're heading towards. That's
0: dicey, so, that's dicey word you mentioned, oh, man. oh sorry. I'm trying to get back on topic right here. Oh sorry, no
2: Rude. I'm charting I
0: was confused. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that one. Uh, I'm gonna have to get a laugh at that one when I play play this back. It's okay. You will. Uh,
2: <laughs> highly deletable content.
0: Yep, yeah, that's, that's what we're all about. Um,
1: oh, that's what HG stands for.
0: <laughs> so you had mentioned blogs in a way. How did that, like, how, how did you guys perceive blogs when blogs were first becoming a thing? Like, did, were you guys concerned about that? Because, I mean, in a lot of ways, didn't the early blogs were really popular. Weren't they typically by uh, reporters and stuff who had their own kind of blogs where they would put their ideas in blog form and, you know, more ideas. Hey, you want to hear more of my ideas about this information I just published an article about, go to my blog or whatever.
2: If they were, they weren't by the reporters I knew. I think, I think be- because of that sort of provincial outlook that we all had back in the nineties, uh, and early two thousands, I think people saw bloggers as, uh, people from the inside of journalism institutions saw them as not as serious. I mean, blog actually carried sort of a, it was kind of a pejorative term to call somebody a blogger, right? And how come it's always a blogger in someone's basement? It's always a blogger in the mom's basement. It's never like just a blogger, you know, up the street at Starbucks observing life or whatever. Like blog just had this less than quality when people spoke about it. And I think it takes um, visionary um, minds to be able to turn a genre like that. And I'll, I'll throw a name out, you know, Robert Wolonsky before he came to the morning news, um, was at the Dallas observer and did a blog. It was the the platform itself was almost just because there was no real good news genre that held his content. And he began to write with a voice and a tone that I think young journalists over time would do well to emulate. I think over time, what you should see in journalism, especially digital journalism is people who write with a perspective because the notion that anyone can be completely down the middle, uh, is, is really discounting the human condition. And I think the more passionate a person is about the subjects they cover, um, as long as it's with the right amount of fact checking and objective facts put into those pieces, I think that's where you find people wanting to go. And so blogs really charted the course for it, but it kind of took, that amount of it took a long time before it was like not seen as less than.
1: For context, can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of what you covered while you were at the Dallas Morning News, and maybe like one or two examples of things that were either exciting or interesting or just kind of really unique that you had a chance to report on?
2: Yeah. So my career has been. Um, Atypical, we'll say. Uh, I wanted to be somebody who was capable of putting out an entire newspaper by myself in the event of pandemic. Uh, I was way ahead of my time in that way. Um, so yeah, when I was <laughs> when I was growing up at the Denton Record-Chronicle um, as a young reporter, I learned to report. I learned to copy edit. I learned to do news page design. And back in those days, we were a paste up shop. So I learned to run the waxer and wield the exacto knife and lay strips of type into a page. And like the edits we made on a page at deadline, okay, turn that comma into a period and just end the sentence there and that kind of thing. I mean, that was all sort of a utilitarian background. So that um, I was proud that over my career at the Dallas Morning News, I worked in almost every department. I had a byline in every single section of the paper at one point or another, but I found most of my time there as an editor, either as a copy editor or as a news editor, um, as a digital editor, I will say a couple of stories that stand out to me. Um, and they're not good stories by any stretch, but they're the ones that are more meaningful to me. So during 2013, I was, uh, overseeing sort of our digital properties efforts at covering the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination. And one of the things we uncovered was that there was a box of notes over at a library at SMU that, um, the editor of the morning news at the time in 63 had asked everyone on staff to, um, to write down like in the next ensuing days after the assassination, to write down their thoughts, their memories of it, their feelings, just things they noticed. And, uh, the missive from the editor even said, none of these will ever be published. This is just for our record keeping. And so here we were 50 years later and we got our hands on them and it was like, oh, this is gold. So we, we built an iBook, um, that I edited and a talented designer named John Hancock, who's still over there, uh, built. And we liked the way the iBook came together, uh, only for the iPad. Um, and that we, so much that we turned it into a printed book as well. Um, and included not just the way I had edited it into a chronology, sort of like a, a running um, script might be for a movie, but also um, we included in the book like the hand, the typewritten copies of the pages. And getting to go and find a piece of history like that and find a way to bring it um, and make it more interactive uh, was a really fun challenge, and it started to kind of open my eyes to like, oh, we can do different things here than than perhaps we've done before. I mean, this thing had notes in it from uh, the guy who worked in the cafeteria who could talk about how Jack Ruby came and had something to eat there at the newspaper that morning before the assassination. And um, it had notes in there that give me goosebumps to think about to this day, things that people saw that didn't go widely reported. And it led to me to get to know some of these reporters, uh, some of whom have since passed away, and get to hear them tell their stories firsthand. And it's, it was a really rewarding uh, part of my career. Um, the other story that uh, stands out to me is I got to interview Molly Ringwald, who was an enormous crush of mine as a young teenager watching (laughs) John Hughes movies. And I got her on the phone because she uh, has a second career now or a third career as a jazz singer. And she was coming to town and um, she was in her car and I talked to her for 20 minutes. And I think I still have the recording of it somewhere. And I when I wrote the piece, I wrote it in Q and a style, but I also then included my inner monologue as part of it. And I just had some fun with it. And then <laughs> um, it's not a great story. It's not, going you know, to win any awards, but uh, I sure won some credibility points with my wife who also has a girl crush on, on Molly Ringwald. So,
1: I mean, who doesn't really, right? That's awesome. Those are, those are really, really, really fascinating. The JFK stuff is just incredible. I think, that's the piece that journalism holds for so many of us. Like I joked, but I really did go get a copy of the paper uh, that, you know, when Barack won the election, because all I could think was, wow, what a historic moment. Like this is happening during my lifetime. And I've seen stuff that my grandparents have saved and my parents have saved. And all I could think was maybe I can share this with my kids one day if I have some. Um, And so I think that that's, There is an element of that, whether it's digital or print, um, that is really special that journalism holds in our lives where, you know, we now live in an age, I think working at Life Blue, many of our team is familiar, working with different publications of, you know, the Reddit threads where people are trying to figure out how to get through the paywall and things like that. We're now in an age where people want everything for free and that's incredibly, incredibly challenging because, you know that type of investigative work or that type of uh, level of passion and commitment uh, comes at a cost. It's not free. And to find people who care enough to present the news to us and share a perspective or, or share the facts with us, um, it is really interesting to see how digital is changing that um, and, and what things are falling to the wayside as a result and what things are getting better. So I'm interested to know from your perspective, obviously the biggest challenge that a lot of newspapers are facing now, right, is subscribing uh, members are dropping. That's a huge thing, whether it's print or digital, it's just a lot harder for many different reasons and different factors um, why people don't want to subscribe and actually pay for it. Um, But, you know, and advertising just does not pay what it used to. And it's a lot harder. You know, there's lots of was a great reply all uh, podcast episode about the weird ads that some sites publish you know where it's like this doctor did this one weird trick you know to help you lose weight or whatever um, so we're in a much different landscape and I'm curious apart from those kind of really super obvious challenges, what do you think a lot of these publications are are facing or some of the things that they're up against just in terms of where journalism is headed or maybe the industry is headed because we're seeing, we're also seeing a a revolution of some of the smaller papers that are, are kind of uh, taking on the public radio model right now. So they're, they're just doing donation based and a lot of them are finding that that's a much better model for them to just have people become members and not have a hard line on subscription. So I'm just kind of curious based on your experience and working with DMN and now at LifeBlue, you're working with different publications and, kind of seeing where these things are headed. I'm interested to know kind of your perspective on that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I would say for almost any business that I've had the good fortune to work with since coming to LifeBlue, I would say what it really boils down to is a business challenge more than a journalism challenge or a platform challenge. And as a business challenge, it's an identity challenge more than anything else. If you can establish what your identity is, and and be true to it over time, you're going to be fine. You know what I see a lot of times is because and there's a there's a smaller uh, community newspaper I work quite closely with that recently is making the decision to invest in its digital future at the literally at the expense of its print future. Um, and I and I love how they're going about it. And the reason I love it is it's owned by a person who sees the writing on the wall and has the will and the commitment to stick with it. If you're a newspaper that is owned by a board and you have to show certain results back every quarter or else, you know, so-and-so gets a pay cut or so-and-so gets fired, you start having um, mission creep. And the mission of staying employed replaces the mission of doing good journalism and reaching the most people. So at this small newspaper, what they've discovered is Over time, print has continued to dwindle, and no amount of money thrown at the problem is going to change people's habits. No amount of money is going to say that the bulk of newspaper readers are age 65 to dead, and uh, it's not really profitable when you factor in the amount of money paper costs and the amount of money it costs to go and deliver these things every single day. However, if you appoint yourself as the watchdog or the journalism arm over a certain area, a city, a county, a region... And you look at the total number of eyeballs in that county or region, it's really only your fault if you can't get those eyeballs. It means you're not either doing the right stories or you're doing the right stories the wrong way, or you're not putting them out in the right platforms to get their attention. So it really just comes down to the will to evolve versus the comfort of printing that money. Have a plan and stick to it. And I think just the ability to kind of see through short term, yeah, you're selling really, really cheap digital subscriptions right now. And yes. There will always be the top six commenters on every Facebook post telling people how to go get around it by going incognito or whatever the case is. But the bottom line is this small paper that I work with, for example, launched its paywall in November and continued to see digital subscriptions rise every month. Then when coronavirus started, they put all of their coronavirus in front of the paywall. So it's free because they recognize it as a service and as a, as a health need for the community. Their traffic has been off the charts. And guess what? they subscriptions have continued to rise as well because for every person who says this should always be free, there's another one who says, I understand that this takes people to produce this and I'm going to support it. And the amount of money they're asking for is literally like Starbucks level for you know, less than a week's worth of Starbucks gets you good independent journalism. So as, as more and more people come to value their communities, which I think is going to be an offshoot of, of coronavirus, I think people will see the value in it.
1: I'm one of those people I subscribed to a paper during all of this because I definitely had that thought of, well, shoot one, I want to read other articles that are on this site uh, that I can't get to because there is a paywall. And two, I was like, wow, how nice that they kept all of this coronavirus coverage available for me. And three, I thought, man, it's really time for me to pony up for some of this journalism that I'm reading.
2: <laughs> right. So
1: but- I, it is very much community. Um, which Travis knows I have uh, shamed him before for uh, not not being I was an NPR hoping donor.
0: Where can I bring that up? <laughs> I was going to say with regard to coronavirus coverage, like I'm noticing a lot of typically pay for pay to read paywall type sites like Washington Post and stuff are publishing all these stories for for free. They they're giving access to just the coronavirus coverage for free, which is probably a really I mean, HBO is doing something similar. Now you can watch HBO stuff for free. Obviously, what they're doing is like, hey, here's a taste, you know, which I think is interesting because it's probably going to convince a lot of people to once they suddenly don't have access to HBO anymore, they're probably going to start to see where they can, you know, stop drinking Starbucks every day and pay for the newspaper or something.
2: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting um, there's an interesting back and forth about that idea in the news community. I will say as somebody who every weekend routinely just for some reason scans to see which movie channels are having their free bundle for the weekend so I can go uh, record whatever movies it is I'm been meaning to see forever. I appreciate that. Uh, but it never entices me to subscribe. I know they always do it around their, their yeah. exclusive shows that they are trying to get you hooked on. Uh, but I will say um, the argument about coronavirus coverage in newspapers Uh, it's double edged, right? On the one hand, it is literally, it's a public service and there is the public service aspect of journalism. I joked earlier about terrible pay and horrible hours, and those are true facts, but people go into that line of work because they do feel like they're helping their community in some way. And so I think the notion of we're going to write this, uh, that's going to help save your life, but we're going to make you pay us for it gets at the whole notion of who am I really helping here? Um, the second flip side of that is if you want to be just uh, straight ahead visionary from the capitalist side of this, no news gets better traffic because no news highlights the need for good journalism more than stuff like coronavirus. And so that's the kind of coverage that you really should be putting behind a paywall because it illustrates why you're needed. And I think there's a middle ground there. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch. I've been watching carefully and I want to know at what point do the post and the Times and the other big ones decide to go in and put their paywall back up on the coronavirus coverage. It's not going to be, it won't be this month, but it might be this summer at some point uh, whenever things get closer to whatever normal begins to look like. Yeah. You were talking earlier about uh, going in and waiting for a Barack Obama edition of your paper. One of the things, uh, just in all of this talking about digitizing news, that is a concern is how does history get recorded? You know, for the, for the last hundreds of years, newspapers have considered themselves rightfully so the first draft of history. And with so many competing storylines, uh, perspectives um, and agendas, frankly, of authors and publishers in the world. Now, who is the source of truth uh, moving forward? And it's interesting. I think about during that um, 2013, during the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, we had the idea at the news to do a reprint of that next day's edition. And doing a reprint of that day's edition required us, the Dallas Morning News, to purchase a full edition from somebody else on eBay that was hmm. photographic quality enough that we would take the pictures and then replate and then reprint. We didn't have those archives <laughs> and well enough to be able to do it. Now, if we didn't have those archives from a time when it was only print, imagine what a historic document that is printed by a newspaper looks like today and what its shelf life is for how things look 50 years from now. So how will coronavirus yeah. be told in 50 years? Are they gonna, is it going to be through the Wayback Machine? I don't know. But it is yeah. something that I've thought of. I sit here in my home office and in this closet behind me, I have a, a morgue of old historic papers that I've saved from throughout my life. And I just wonder, that thing stops circa... 2010, 2011. And then, and then what, like, where do the rest of the, of the old historic yellowing newspapers go to record what we, what we were living through. Which so, is probably
1: a good, a good segue to, sorry to interrupt you, Travis. I just, right. I we talk a lot and I think, you know, we've talked uh, in one of our upcoming episodes with Brian uh, Kowalczyk. Uh, we recorded with him. He's our designer at Life Blue about the finality there's a difference in the finality of print versus the quote unquote finality of the internet, right? Like when you're printing a front page for a newspaper, that's a lot different than posting something online. Because yes, if you mess it up online, you can just go in and edit it and you do see, you know, changes were made to the story or a correction when it's made. And there can be an editor's note or something like that. Um, But Printing your front page of your news is a lot different than publishing something digitally online. The stakes are not gone, but they are much lower because you can mess something up and very quickly edit it in a, in a CMS and fix it. Um, and I'm sure there are lots of mistakes that maybe never make it to the light of day or, you know, uh, really are seen by many people before they're fixed. But I also wonder about how that changes uh journalism, right? And not to say that journalists aren't still holding themselves to the same standard, but it's a mental shift in, hey, this thing can always be edited, changed, updated. Um, whereas when you print something, it's printed, and it goes out the door, and it gets delivered to people's homes, and they have that version of it. And it is not, you can't go edit it and change it. So there's there's also a, an element of that, I think, that's tied to it, too.
2: Yeah, there's two things about what you said that really jump out at me. and And one of them is, that idea that there's a finality to print is one of the reasons that I think print organizations were slow to adapt to the internet. And I think that has to do with, um, knowing the work that went into hitting that final typeset deadline, hitting that final key to typeset what you're doing. That was really, um, a driving force in what is perfect versus what is done. And then I'm sorry. Is can you hear that? That's <laughs> no, fine. Yeah, I'm sorry. My dad's no, dog okay. is going nuts right now. That's hilarious. Was I was like, what? I was like, is
1: that a child? I was like, is someone playing the recorder? I can't be too sure.
2: No, I knew we were going to have trouble because as I'm looking out my back window, one of my horses was walking by, and it always drives my dad's no, dog fine. nuts and so now. Sorry about that. And I was being all <laughs> Ill- I don't totally know if you're fine.
0: being serious or not.
1: He is being serious. He <laughs> I I am, horses. I am. Oh, I, I
0: didn't yeah. know that you had I didn't know you were a horse. Horseman. Yeah,
1: he's a, a horseman. <laughs> I am
2: part horse, part man. Um, I don't know how much of that got ruined. I was just talking about the finality of a printed product being something that, because we saw that as sort of being semi-permanent, it it might have like it stunted our ability to think of ourselves as iterative in the publishing world. Um, mm-hmm. And then what I would also say is, you know, you want, you don't want a perfect website, a perfect article, uh, a perfect news organization. When you look at it online, you want one that makes mistakes and then highlights the mistakes it's made and tells you it's corrected. it. Because I feel like that's the only way to build that kind of credibility with your audience. Everybody makes mistakes. Every article needs correction. Um, The ones that go in and change things after the fact without telling you that becomes a more sinister way of doing business in my, in my estimation, because I think what you're doing then is, um, is a slippery slope toward the ability just to, to manipulate audiences.
1: Yeah. It's misleading.
2: 100%. So what I was going to say
0: is, um, so you know how vinyl records have made a comeback, right? Yep. I appreciate owning a vinyl, a piece of vinyl because I can hold the artwork. I can look at it. I can, Look at the liner notes and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that in 20, 30 years, there's going to be a, like a desire to have print again in some way where people are, you know, cause you know how people are, they're very like, there's nostalgia, there's what was used to be cool is cool again, that kind of thing. Like, I wonder if that's, that's just a general just point of discussion, but do you guys think print will ever make a comeback?
1: I I would, to jump in before I let Will answer, uh, I would say it almost already is in some ways. Like there are several indie magazines that I follow that, you know, there's one called Offscreen um, that we subscribe to and their whole premise is making advertising more transparent and a more integrated part of how they're uh, allowing sponsorships in order to actually print the magazine. And I feel like their existence and the work that they're doing is a direct offshoot of not necessarily the nostalgia, but the idea of uh, the value in things that are tactile, that have the finality um, that readers interact with in a different way. And so it is sort of, it feels a little bit like that revival. So I would Mm -hmm. say in some small ways we're already seeing a resurgence of that, but in terms of newspaper, I, I, don't know that's a
2: great question yeah i i like to think i really am torn on this question and it's come up before in conversation it seems like uh if it does come back it's more as a curiosity than as a as a ever-living way to get your information because information is so ephemeral now what you read one minute on twitter can be overturned within a few minutes and you need the ability to do that so it becomes like those historic moments might be better served in some ways as a keepsake in print but that also kind of depends on the generations coming up behind us like i watch my teenage son and i see like he has now what a couple of yearbooks from high school and like the yearbook to a high school kid doesn't mean the same thing it meant when i was a kid because that was a final record of your life as a teenager at that school. It was the place your friends left you these messages that would sit with you all summer. And now today it's, yeah, it's a photo album. I get it. I can go flip through any social media platform I want and see things that are more up to date. And so, um, I think it's possible. I think people do enjoy a tactile experience, but I think the value of the content inside is such that, um the ability to change it and the ability to update it might supersede that
0: yeah that's my assumption too it's going to be like a niche thing or like some sort of weird hipster thing you know one-off thing that some little tiny print shop does you know just to be right ironic or whatever you know
2: someone (laughs) with one of those handlebar mustaches riding one of those tricycles with a giant wheel will hop off and exactly
0: He'll have it. Go buy a go by a
2: sarsaparilla and read the daily newspaper. Yeah, I get it.
0: Exactly. He'll 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 you know, throw it at people and stuff.
2: <laughs> While wearing a page boy <laughs> outfit. Yes.
1: Exactly. Oh man. Are there any fun facts about newspapers or uh creating the newspaper or maybe just the industry that you think people don't generally know that we can share with our listeners? Mm. And maybe some insider info.
2: Or you would ask me that question. Uh, yeah, I mean... Oh,
1: I'm going to make you work to be on this podcast. Well, to make no mistake.
2: <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, I spent many years of my time with the news on a production desk, which meant that, you know, we were the ones who came in at three in the afternoon and went home at one in the, in the morning um, after putting the paper to bed. And uh, there's a lot of war stories that aren't so much like uh, fun facts, but really what it comes down to is um, I think the way newspapers sort of have changed our language. So this is something I get into it with um, reporters and editors today. When you see a headline that is lazy, it makes me crazy because when you have the ability on the internet to fill any character space with any words you want to try to basically sell your content as being interesting, how dare you use words like irk or I as verbs and it makes me nuts. And so um I can remember uh, when the Lewinsky scandal was going on uh, during Clinton's presidency. I was working—I want to tell this story, but here we go. I was working on the copy desk, and I had a buddy who was editing a front-page story. Um, Eric uh, Nelson—I'm talking about Uh, you—he was editing a front-page story on the Lewinsky scandal, and uh, the page designer had called for a one-column. 72.3-line headline. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's about an inch and a half to two inches wide. 72 points, pretty big size. So the words were going to have to be real small. You only had word room for like three of them. And he sat there on deadline trying to make a headline fit. Lewinsky's a long name. Scandal didn't even fit. It was ridiculous. And he was going back and forth with the designer about, hey, you got to change this head spec. This is ridiculous. And he said, just see what you can get. Just get me the best you can give him. So he sent him a headline that said, Bill likes sex. Uh, <laughs> that's all that fit. <laughs> that's all that fit. It didn't get in print, obviously. It was just uh, back and forth banter, and he eventually changed the head spec on it. But my gosh, like you think about the way our language has been changed by the way people used to cram words into uncomfortable spaces in a printed paper. That alone makes the uh, the bottomless pit of the internet worth it if it's used responsibly.
1: I like that. That probably seems a good a note to end on as any, honestly.
2: <laughs> I hate yes. that that's the ender. Oh, what a terrible <laughs> ender. God.
0: I mean, I can make that the first story in the episode. <laughs> know,
1: yeah. That's going to be, we're going to name the, head, the the podcast episode, Bill Like Sex. That's going to be the title. <laughs> well, Our oh conversation
2: with Will Pry. Yeah. Nice.
1: Oh, man. Well, thank you for hanging out with us uh, over Zoom uh, remotely uh, with horses and dogs in the background uh, in order to tell us all about your seven decades at the the (laughs) Dallas Morning News or just in general uh, in journalism, I guess. Um, This has been really interesting. I know, you know, as an agency, we're always working with clients in, in different industries and always talking about this the crux of this business challenge, right? How do you bring your business online and how do you stake out your own little stamp of you know, the internet and digital presence to interact with your customers or your readers or whatever that might look like? So this felt like a good start uh, for a conversation. I'm sure we'll probably beg you to come back on the podcast with us if you don't hate hearing the sound of your own voice after you listen to it. Um, but this has uh... been highly entertaining and informative because I know that this is just something that many of us are thinking about all the time, As especially right now in a moment where we're turning to the news every single day and we're trying to figure out who we can trust and how to invest in them so that we can continue trusting them. So I think that this has been a really timely conversation and this is probably an episode that we should try and release sooner rather than later because I think it would provide a lot of value and maybe boost some subscription numbers. Who knows?
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, I know I'm not going to change anybody's minds ever when I say this, but I do speak as a recovering journalist when I say that no one goes into the business for the glamour, for the hours, for the pay, because it's not there. It's out of a it's out of a service aspect. And I think anyone who ascribes um, malice to a reporter's intentions probably ought to just, you know, walk a, a mile on their beat and see what it looks like uh, first to understand, you know, we live in an upside down time and I think, uh, finding a source of truth is more important than ever. So.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I Couldn't agree more. Well, uh, if people perhaps would like to stalk you on the interwebs, are there any places where they can find you? Are you on the tweets or the Instagrams or the, uh, what are the kids doing now? The TikToks? I don't know. I'm not on these things.
2: Yeah. I'm on the Twitters at will pry and, um, you can find me find me there uh find me on the life blue website i'm around
1: awesome well thank you will thanks for being on the podcast
2: thanks for having me